All right, well, uh, turn over to the book of Revelation tonight. Uh, looking forward to the message this evening. I want to, just as you get there, I read this note from Linda Snow. She says, I want to thank you for praying about the risk and results of the cerebral angiogram I had on the 4th. Our Father heard and answered the prayers, and three doctors saw something in the vessels of my brain. The uh, results, God bless, uh, was all looks good. That was the final results there. There was no abnormalities. I think Junior said there was nothing up there is what he said. Uh, but uh, we're grateful that there's at least something up there that she said yes to you uh, a few years ago, brother. Only God could do this. Also, thank you for the uh, something, the many cards and flowers, Linda Snow. So, Lord bless you. Thank the Lord for his good answer in those, uh, those prayers there. Revelation chapter 1, we're going to be there tonight, and we are so thankful to be back in the church in church, and where we can be back in the Word of God, and I'm grateful we can be back in this study tonight. Uh, and I'm reminded that uh, Revelation 1-3 reminds us that this is the only book of the Bible that has its own blessing associated with those that hear and keep the words of this prophecy. And so what a blessing we have to be able to come here this evening. Now, remind you as we continue that Revelation is broken up into three main sections as Revelation kind of lays out for us this in verse number 19 here in chapter 1. There's the Christ John remembered, what he remembered when he was here on this earth, what he had learned and, and just been taught by the Holy Spirit after he'd ascended back to heaven. There's also the church age that was given a message at that point. And so chapters 2 and 3, we see that very, very clearly there. We're going to look more at the seven churches of Revelation coming forward. Um, and they're mentioned here tonight. And so we will mention them. I've got a little bit of a, a map that will show you about where they're located there. But then finally, we see the bulk of the book of Revelation deals with the coming judgment and the blessings of, uh, that are yet to come. And that's where we look forward to Revelation 21. We look forward to Revelation 19. We see Christ as the victor. Amen. And we don't have to uh, be down in the dumps because we already have read the back of the book and we know who wins. And I tell you, it's not Satan. And it's, and, and it's not his minions and, and his, uh, his demons. I tell you, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that. And one of these days, we're going to see that uh, with our eyes. Now we see it with our faith. And one of these days, we're going to see it, behold it with our own eyes. And so I remind you, Christ is the central figure. I'm preaching this morning from Genesis to Revelation. Christ is the central figure. And he is who we're going to deal with tonight as we see the Christ of the churches here tonight. Uh, and, and as we think about this, he is presented as the channel of the word and testimony of God. He is that source of revelation for this book. And he is the firstborn of the dead. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is revealed to be the source of all grace. And so thankful for Jesus Christ. He's the source of our royal priesthood. Uh, he has the right then to gather unto himself all glory and dominion forever and ever. And so we see then that He is the promised one, the one that is to come with clouds. He'll be attended with great power and glory. The first time He came like a lamb, the second time will be like a lion, coming in with great boldness and, and just truly demonstrating uh, a great uh, day that day. Every eye on this earth will see and behold and know Him on that glorious day. It will be no mystery. Man, I don't know about you, but I'm excited. The more I read, the more I study about the coming of my Savior, I, I'm just so thankful that I serve the King of Kings. I'm thankful that we get to serve the Lord of Lords. He is the Almighty One of eternity, present, past, and future. And so we are thankful we have the chance to worship Him tonight. And so John opens this next passage here, 
And we find that he addresses the seven churches here and in their trouble. So let's look in Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20, as we just begin this passage tonight, and we are just encouraged uh, because the whole point of Revelation was to encourage the churches in the midst of their tribulation. And so let's look there in verse number 9. He says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet and saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I, turn, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about with paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned a furnace, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice was as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell, fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, "Fear not." I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and which the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Let's pray together. Lord, what a joy it is to be back in your word tonight. Lord, I just thank you for the time and study and preparation. And Lord, being reminded of how wonderful you are. And so God, I just come before you with great gratefulness, Lord, in my heart for all that you've done for me. Lord, and I thank you for uh, your precious son. Lord, what an incredible gift he is to us tonight. And and as we just begin, Lord, and this study here in Revelation, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged, we would be stirred, because we serve a mighty God, not a dead God made of stone or wood or even worse of materialism, but a God who is alive forevermore, the God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is the one who is the victor over the grave and over hell. What a joy it is tonight to come into your presence. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. The Apostle John, who uh, wrote the book of Revelation, was the oldest living apostle of our Lord at the time of this writing. He was probably esteemed as probably the most revered saint of his day. And, but instead of attracting attention to this, he immediately identified himself with the people. And as he did so, we see uh, he was well known to these churches uh, in the book uh, of Revelation, these churches in Asia. 
And he knew their suffering. He knew what they had gone through. He knew what they were enduring. He knew the hardships they faced. He was personally and intimately involved. As one commentator mentioned that he had just spent his life ministering to the people of this area. And so he knew what they had faced. He knew the hardships they were under. And, he, and, and the God inspires him to write this powerful message of revelation to these churches who were going through a time of great trial. And let me just encourage you, if you're going through a time of trial, this is a message for you. And if we're going through a time where we need, to, uh, where we need some encouragement, revelation is for us today because we're reminded over and over and over again of who great Jesus is and how great He is. Man, I tell you, I, I'm so excited when I get to Revelation chapter 4 and I see that as they look through heaven and they're seeking one that can open the seals and they said, wait a second, we have the Lamb of God. He can open the seals. He is worthy. And then later as the, as the choruses of, of voices lift together in all of heaven and, and all of heaven reverberates with a sound of praise, I tell you, it's a joyful thing as you read through Revelation and you hear them singing a new song and they say, sing glory unto the King of kings and the Lamb, and the Lamb of God. I tell you, it's a, it's a great book of the Bible. It's exciting to see in the back of the book where Jesus wins. It's exciting to see that He has not forgotten us in all of these things. And, and sometimes, though life may give us a, a bum deal, we're grateful that it doesn't end when I breathe my last here, but instead He's got something greater for me. And man, it, it's, I, I'm so thankful that God has given us this tremendous book. And I'm so thankful for uh, John being willing to be used of God. Well, listen, he knew what they were going through, and he knew what they faced, and he said, you need this message. Now, the exile of John was to the Isle of Patmos. I think we've got a picture here of where that might be located, and I'm sorry, that's real small. I wish you, could, you ever want to put your fingers on there and blow it up a little bit. But there in the picture, you're going to find a couple of things, and I think I had a pointer somewhere. We'll point, point at this. So here in this section, these are the seven churches and about where they're located there uh, in Asia Minor there. And then here's Patmos, little bitty guy right there, little bitty island there, not far from Crete in that area. This was a small island. It was rocky. It had a rough terrain. It was about 10 miles long and about 6 miles wide. It's there in the Aegean Sea. It's southwest of Ephesus and just beyond the island of Simos. And early church fathers like uh, uh, Arrhenius and the Clement of Alexandria and Eusebius state that John was sent to this island as an exile under the ruler uh, Domitian. According to Victorianus, uh, John, though he was aged, was forced to labor in the mines located there at Patmos. Uh, early sources also indicate that about 96 AD, at Domi uh, at, uh, when Domitian was, uh, uh, died there, John was allowed to return to Ephesus when the emperor Nerva was in power. And so God had him here. It was a bleak time. It wasn't a good time. He was shut off from friends. He was shut off from the other churches, from human fellowship. And, and uh, it was at this time that John was given the most extensive revelation of things that were ever shown to any writer in the New Testament. We have bits of prophecy throughout the Bible, but this one book uh, contains uh, the bulk of the prophecy here. And, and we're, really, we're going to look at some of the book of Daniel as we discern and decipher uh, the things that are in Revelation and other scriptures, Ezekiel, as we discern what God has here. But though men could... Uh, could, could tell him where he could go, they could not bind the Spirit of God. They couldn't bind the testimony of Jesus Christ and the work of Christ in John's life. And so then what makes it exciting to me is there are often times in life where we find ourselves in lonely places. And there's often times in life that it seems like, man, the world has abandoned us, but it's in those places that God speaks the most clearly. 
For example, it was in the wilderness that Moses met with the Lord and wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It was while David was uh, being pursued by Saul on the backside uh, of the wilderness that he wrote many of the Psalms. It was while Isaiah lived in difficult days and died a martyr's death that and God inspired him to write the book of Isaiah. It was while Ezekiel was in exile that he wrote. It was Jeremiah's life of, of trial and persecution where we read the book of Lamentations and we see uh, what God did in Jeremiah's life in, in that uh, book that bears his name. And thus, as John is here on this Isle of Exile, if you will, on this Isle of Patmos, he and the churches have gone through a terrible time of persecution, but God spoke the most clearly. He spoke plainly and clearly to him and even to us today about things that are yet to come. And so remember this truth. If you're in life's, uh, the, the valley of life's difficult circumstances, it's there that we're going to hear God's comforting presence as He ministers to our life. If you're traveling through the trials of this life, I urge you, seek His face. Know He's real. Just as John did there in that place of exile, so we can find Him here. So today we're going to spend some time looking at Jesus Christ. Looking at this, in this passage, John really goes back and remembers the things that were. Remember, as he says in verse 19, write the things which thou hast seen. He's going back and he's going to remember Christ and recount some of those things. And there's a couple of things we want to share. And first off, we want to start with his message. And so in verse number 10, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I think that's significant for us just for the fact that we find John not on the Sabbath, but on the Lord's day, which is the first day of the week. And we find him there in the Spirit. Remember, we worship God in spirit and in truth. Amen. And so if we want to hear from the Lord there, we find him giving us an example that we're in our place on the Lord's day, ready to serve him with bended knee and bended heart, ready to hear from the word of God. And so we have here in verse number 10, as it goes on, and he says, And heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now, notice that Jesus, as he begins to speak, he says, Listen, this is a message for those early churches. These seven churches of John's day were literal churches that John was familiar with. Matter of fact, much of his ministry had been conducted in that area of Asia. And so the question comes naturally to mind is just simply why of the hundreds of churches located in cities all over the world by this time were these seven churches selected? Remember, this has been about 63 years since the day of Pentecost, so literally hundreds of churches had sprung up over the last six decades. There had been uh, people saved in all over the known world at that time, from uh, Ethiopia all the way up into Rome. There were churches in even Spain that had just exploded. This was a time of unbelievable growth because they were following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But it's, rep it's, it's suggested that these churches also represent the seven basic divisions of church history. We're going to look at that a little bit more uh, in, uh, in detail as we go forward. But as, if you study back through church history, you're going to see that there's been seven basic periods or stages in which they've gone through. And, and as we deal with these later, it'll be a little bit more plain. Uh, I just don't want to steal from there uh, in, in, in preparation for that. But there's also, we see that there are seven types of churches that exist today. So most of these phases of church history are already done and unconcluded, but there's influence still carries over from one stage to stage. And so there's some trends that are still existing in existence in our own day, and we're going to see that in a little bit more detail as we ch cover chapters 2 and 3. 
But there was also seven characteristics that can uh, still happen in our life or in the life of our church. And so it's, it is the, the practical application that we're going to look at on a personal and individual basis as well as in our church. And when we come to them, we can really see why God chose these seven churches and why they comp comprise what God had in, in store for us here. But notice what he says here. As he goes in through this, he begins to talk about and refer to them as seven lampstands. And Asa, I'm going to have you come on up uh, sometime soon uh, and just see if you can find a plug that maybe that works. He's got an illustration for us tonight. I appreciate my son uh, being willing to help. We can obviously, if we look here in verse number 11, he says, I am the Alpha Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, and Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. I, thank you, son. I appreciate that. And, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and, I, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And so we see this seven golden candlesticks or seven lampstands. And we can dogmatically be able to say that these seven lampstands are the seven churches. Look at verse number 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in thy right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So God lays it out for us. What is this lampstand or, or candlestick here? And so while in this world, I remind you that Jesus Christ said, I am the light of the world. But before he departed from this earth, he told his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, 14, ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. And so though we give light, we do not originate light. Just as, for example, a lamp, and I, don't, I think I might have a long enough cord here to bring it up here where it's a little taller. So a lamp, a lamp. we think about a lamp and we think, Okay, so where is its source of power or strength? Uh, is it in the light bulb? No, it's not in the light bulb. Uh, is it in the switch? No, it's not in the switch. Where is its source of power? It's, in, it's plugged into the floor. It's city utilities right here in this particular place. We know where that is. And so we realize then that the source of power is not in the lamp. It's just able to broadcast that and use that in a very useful way. And so we turn the light switch on, the light comes on, and it shines forth the light. Well, in the same way, we see that Jesus Christ says, I am the originator of light. I am the originator of power. And when you're plugged into me, then guess what happens? You also produce light. You're the one that is, is able to proclaim to the world that He is the light of the world. And listen, I can't shine on my own without the Lord Jesus Christ. These churches could not be churches. These churches could not carry the gospel. They couldn't be the light without the Lord Jesus Christ. they got to have that power. They have to have that strength. And that's why it's so important as a, as a church member. Listen, I want to be plugged into my church. I want to be plugged into the Word. I want to be plugged into the Lord Jesus Christ because that's the source of my strength. That's the source of my light. That's the source of everything I need to be able to illuminate the, the world around me. So that was the message. Jesus Christ began to say, listen, I've got a message and it's vital for the church today. Now that's distracting, so I'm going to turn off your light. I'm sorry. Now the church, the church, this is a message that's very vital for us today. But let's look very quickly at the ministry of our Savior. And, I, and this is going to take the bulk of our time here at the end, but... And verses 12 through 20, he really takes and begins to describe what he sees in Jesus Christ. In verse 12, 
I'm going to read this again for you. And he says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. Remember, he heard it, but he didn't see him. And being turned, I saw seven golden golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Now, I'm just going to stop right here in verse 13. As he begins to describe this, he says, I see an image, and it looks like the Son of Man. What he's saying is, it's not real distinctive. Now, every Christian lives in two locations. John was in the Isle of Patmos, and he was in the Spirit. He had a human environment in which he dwelt physically, and then there was a heavenly environment which he enjoyed. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from our God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They were in Christ and at Colossae. And so the one uh, must not be emphasized at the expense of the other. We're in, uh, if you will, I'm uh, here present with you, but there's also that spiritual aspect where my heavenly home is tugging on my heartstrings every day. So to be taken up with being in Christ, it could be a danger to be taken up with that because we forget that we are also in this world and God's called us to uh, be lights in this world. But also we can be so captivated with the world that we forget that we are in Christ and become materialistic. We have wrong ideas about sanctification. And so the two locations are kept in balance. And so as Jesus begins to talk about this, we're reminded of the fact that there are, there are two realities here as we, we think about this. I'm here, but my mind and my heart is there. But God's called us to continue while we're here. There was a workman who had a little store where he made little shoes and, and he had an apartment upstairs above his shop. And someone asked him, they asked him, now where do you live? He says, well, I work down here, but I live up there. You know, what a good illustration of my work here. Well, I work down here, but really my heart, my home is there. You know, and as John thinks, and John sees these things, he's reminded, and he turned to see who it was that spoke to him. He saw these lampstands that were there, and these candlesticks, and then there was a personage in the the midst, and he lists ten details about this person that are very descriptive, and we're going to note, notice that only the stars and the lampstands lamp are interpreted for us. But as we look at the, uh, this person and the way he's described, the Lord didn't interpret it because it's very obvious that it is the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse number 13, first off, he says, In the midst of the, candlestick, uh, golden, the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. So we see one like unto the Son of Man here in this, this thir- uh, verse 13. So this, this indicates that this person was not a, some sort of a weird, grotesque creature of a supernatural world, but he was manlike in appearance. Matter of fact, if you look into chapter, uh, in Daniel chapter 7, look there with me, we see another time where this was also seen in Daniel chapter 7 in your Bible there. And keep your finger here in Daniel 7. We'll be back over here in just a moment. Daniel 7 and verse 13, he says, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. 
And so there again, once again, we see this in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, this revelation uh, of this one that likened to the Son of Man. The Son of Man is one of the most frequent titles that Jesus applied to himself. It was used of the Messiah in all four of the Gospels as well as there in Daniel chapter 7. And so we recognize that this is a, a synonymous with Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see him described as clothed with a garment all the way down to his foot here. Clothed with a garment down to the foot in verse number 13. And it'll just remind you that if the, the high priests often wore robes that ministered down to the feet. And, and you can go back through the Old Testament and read exactly what those looked like. And it was indicative of Christ's role in our life. Remember in the book of Hebrews, we learn that He is our high priest. He is the one that we can go to, the mediator, and we're thankful that He is in our life. And so here in this priestly garb, we find Jesus Christ once again as, uh, as our priest. We can enter boldly into the throne of grace. Once again, we're reminded of this truth. Thirdly, uh, as we go down through this, we see He was girded about the breast with a golden girdle. And so He was girded about the paps, or if you will, with a golden girdle. And so this refers to a symbol of strength, of authority that's common in the ancient world. And so the average working man wore a short tunic uh, and oftentimes loose-fitting clothes. But only those in authority had, uh, had a girdle on. And so again, we see this symbol of strength. We see this authority as to who he is. He's not just a commoner like, like you or I, but it was obviously someone with great authority. And then the next part we see in verse number 14. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as the snow. This conveys this idea of antiquity. There was, a little, there was age there. It reminds us then of Daniel chapter 7, verses 9-13, where Christ was called the Ancient of Days. Remember there, uh, as we read that in just a moment ago, in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. And so here is Jesus... Uh, and as he stands here before them, uh, representing this authority, representing his priestlyhood, representing then also this antiquity that he is from everlasting to everlasting. He'd already made this proclamation to John, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Remember, Alpha is the very first letter in the Greek uh, New Testament, in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter. He says, from beginning to end, I am. That's who he is. And, and, and that's, that's what we've got to be reminded of as we look at the Jesus of the Bible, is that He always is. And, and sometimes our life is a little bitty short, and we think we know what's best. But Jesus said, remember, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I know it all. I am God. I am the Ancient of Days. There's also this whiteness that represents the righteousness of God. And so we see this all played out in his life. Let's look next here in verse number 14 as we see him go on in this descriptive, this descriptive power. He says, His eyes were as a flame of fire. The Greek construction is literally, His eyes shot fire. You ever had someone mad at you? Husband? <laughs> Husband, your wife ever been mad at you? Boy, those eyes of fire come at you. Son, don't ever answer if I got mad at you like that, all right? No, seriously, you've, you've, we've seen this happen where the eyes just get full of, of that fire. It's indicated that Christ was indignant over something. As we progress with the vision, we find that he was indignant over indifference. He was indignant even over apostate churches. And 
And we see later in Revelation 3, he says that, I, I would that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I just want to spit you out of my mouth. And that's a King John version there. But whenever the church of Jesus Christ is not what it should be, we can find it arouses the indignation of Christ. He wants to set it right. It goes on in verse 15. Let's look there. And his feet like unto fine brass. This brass or bronze speaks of, uh, to us of judgment. It reminds us of the brazen altar of that tabernacle where sin was judged. And what a reminder that he is not just, uh, not just Jesus, the friend, of, uh, the friend of sinners, but also he is the judge. He will one day sit upon that throne and he will judge righteous judgment, perfect judgment. And he reminds us in Revelation uh, chapter number 15 and Revelation, uh, excuse me, Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 that he will one day judge and rule over the earth. His voice also in verse number 15, the second part, and he says, And his feet like unto fine brass as if they burn in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. This simile can best be illustrated by Niagara Falls. Anybody been to Niagara Falls? Could you speak to someone standing next to you? It's incredibly loud at Niagara. There is there's no way to be able to describe the sound that uh, emanates from, those, uh, from the water that is pouring over the edge. And, and if you can, if you just picture this, if you will, this, it just seems to figure, uh, to, to illustrate the power in the voice of Jesus Christ. I tell you, our God is all-powerful. He is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, as we've mentioned. And, and as we see this, uh, this tremendous power in, in Jesus Christ, there's a lot of people today that don't hear His voice and maybe that, and that uh, choose to close their ears to the voice of God. But on that day, no man will be able to stop their ears to the voice of God. No man will be able to say, I can't hear you because His voice will permeate even the hardest of hearts. And how important it is today that we soften our hearts. How important it is today that we come back to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. How important it is today that we kneel before this one that John saw here in the midst of the seven candlesticks with his care and his love as his concern as he watches over and he cares for the churches. And I'm just reminded, today we need Jesus more than ever before. You see, men... Men can't hear His voice because of the call of worldliness today. Materialism, education, psychology, all of these things, they try to drown out the voice of the Lord, but in that day, nothing will drown out His voice. Every knee will bow of things of heaven, of things of earth, and things under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's go on in verse number 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a two-edged sword. So let's, let's look at this. As we see this, the Lord just interpreted to John this, this meaning of the seven stars in verse number 20. So let's look there in verse number 20 in, in, uh, in the Bible there. It says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in thy right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. Now we established already that the candlesticks are those uh, seven churches uh, that Jesus Christ mentions. They were in verse number 11. We're going to cover those extensively in chapters 2 and 3. Now there is also the seven stars are the angels of the seven golden uh, or the seven churches. And so we see here, uh, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Sorry, I'm just making sure I read that correctly. So we he see here in verse number 20 that the seven stars 
this word in the Greek, this word uh, angels, means literally messengers. Remember, angel is a messenger. Uh, and so there's many uh, Bible scholars that look at this verse and they see that it doesn't refer necessarily to angelic beings, but, but those local congregations and those pastors that are leading, those messengers in that, that church. Now, I'm not going to split hairs. There's, there's two different uh, things that we can see here that where God uses this. But I just want you to see in Revelation chapter 2, let's look in verse number 1. As we see this written that uh, to this spiritual leader or the pastor that was at the church of Ephesus was addressed directly here. And he says, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. He's listen, he said, I'm writing directly to you in this moment. I appreciate what uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee said. He said, I like to think that it refers to the local pastors. It's good to hear a pastor being called an angel. Sometimes we're called so many other things. <laughs> I said, I like that. But really, as we see this, it's just I'm grateful that God took time to address uh, these churches and each of these. Now let's go forward, if we can, in verse number 16, the second part there. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Ephesians 6 refers to uh, the Word of God as the sword of the Spirit. Remember, if you're memorizing Ephesians 6, 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How many of you have that one memorized? All right, good. Good, so keep working at it if you're still working on it. But in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 12, it also suggested that the Word of God is quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we have this correlation there in the Scripture between the Word of God uh, being the sword of the Spirit. And so the spoken Word of Christ here will go forth then as a sharp sword, and there will be no defense in the day of battle uh, with the Antichrist against it. Imagine this, if you will. If you look in Revelation chapter 19, you'll see this. But look in Genesis chapter 1 in your Bible, Mark chapter 4, and then Revelation 19. We're going to look at a couple of things as we see this Word of God as it goes forth. Because we recognize that one day, as the Antichrist and his minions and his, uh, his armies come against uh, Jesus Christ, it will be the very Word of Christ that wins the battle that day. I don't know about you, that's awesome. It is incredible. So somewhere along the line, though, we've bought into this idea that uh, good and evil are about the same in strength. Somewhere along the line, we've decided, uh, maybe it's a DC comic or a Marvel comic that we've read or watched, and, and we've, we've gotten this idea that, well, good and evil are in a constant struggle, and we're not sure which one is going to win because they're so equally matched. But the reality and the biblical reality is, is that, listen, the devil don't stand a chance. Uh, there, he has no power uh, over the Lord. He has no ability over God. And I'm just reminded that greater is He, the same Holy Spirit we preached this morning that indwells the believer, greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. And when you come to a place where you're going through a trial and you're going through a place of great uh, uh, struggle in your life, I remind you that the one who is greater than Satan, the one who just speaks and the world comes into existence, the one who speaks and the winds and the, and the, and the seas were calm, the one who speaks and all the armies of the Antichrist will be destroyed. I'm telling you, it's that same God that's alive in me today. I'm telling you, I'm excited about this, Lord. Genesis 1-3, let's look at these scriptures together. It says, and God said, let there be light. Remember his word. God said, let there be light. And what happened? You missed a word. Boom shakalaka, there was light. All right. 
All right, then it goes on in Mark chapter 4 and verse number 39. We see God's word is so powerful that Christ could calm the storm with his words. It says, as he was sleeping in the boat, he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. That's the power of God's word. That's the power of, of the spoken word of our God. And I'm telling you, when we come to the, the word of God and we come to the Bible, why do we think that God's written word has less power in our life than the spoken word did when he was on this earth? May we not neglect the word of God. May we not neglect the Bible. May we be willing to say, listen, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. Now I'm going to stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Bible. Listen. His word is not powerless. And on that day, it will be His word that will defeat the beast's armies that amass against Him. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, it says, And out of His mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it He should smite the nations, and He shall rule them with a rod of iron. Listen, he said, listen, that's the power of our God today. That is why the Bible is so important. It's God's word. It's vital we seek it early. It's vital that we, uh, that we dwell upon it during our day. It's vital that we meditate it on at night. It's vital that we continue to let it transform our life. Dr. R.A. Torrey said, A verse must be read often and reread and read again before the wondrous message of love and power that God has put in it begins to appear. Words must be turned over and over in the mind before their full force and beauty takes possession of us. One must look a long time at the great masterpieces of art to appreciate their beauty and to understand their meaning. And so one must look a long time at the great verses of the Bible to appreciate their beauty and understand their meaning. You know, sometimes we just come to the Bible and we say, well, I read today and it's good. But see... God calls us not just to read once, but to dwell, to meditate on His Word, to let it permeate our lives and transform us. Let's go on. Verse 16, the last part there. And His countenance was as the sun shineth in His strength. As John describes this one walking through the candlesticks, he's overwhelmed by this visual sight. And he hearkens back to a day when the divine nature of Christ was revealed to him as a young man. He was following Jesus Christ, the God-man. And, and as he saw Christ there in the multitude, and he saw Christ uh, there on the Mount Transfiguration, and he saw Christ throughout his life, he got on that Mount Transfiguration just a momentary glimpse of Christ in all of his glory. Matthew chapter 17 and verse number 2 kind of recounts that for us. And he says, And when transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment as white as the light. Could you imagine? Man, sometimes we think of Jesus like we've seen the pictures, and he just looks like a common man. But he's not just a common man, is he? I tell you what, I can only imagine what John beheld, not just at Mount Transfiguration, but then as he was caught up on the Lord's Day, and as he was in the Spirit, and he looked up and he saw this vision of this incredible uh, Lord and Savior of his, that as he saw him there, and he realized that this is my Jesus. Oh, my goodness, I couldn't imagine. I can't, I can't wait to see him face to face. Let me remind you, that Jesus is the divine Son of God. 
He is still the King of kings and He's still the Lord of lords. I don't care what this world says and I don't care how small they make us feel because I serve the living, living and risen Savior tonight. So let me just remind you, that's why it's important we worship Him. That's why it's important we let Him be Lord. God, I want you to be God of my life. I don't want it to be John anymore. I don't want it to be the God of this world. I don't want my life to be overwhelmed by all the, the sorrow and the sickness of this world. I want to be yours and yours alone. You see, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, we're called the sons of God. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Yet, let me just remind you, we will never be God. Christ is and will be exalted far above and beyond uh, us, even in our glorified state. We are, we, are, we are not equal with God. We will never be equal with God. There is one God. And so John, then we find his response. And let's look in verse 17. This is a response of what he saw that incredible day. Remember, this is the John who loved Jesus. This is the John that walked with Jesus. This is the John that leaned upon his breast at that last supper, and he loved him. And when he saw him, and when I saw him, he says, I fell at his feet as dead. I was overwhelmed. He said, man, I, I can't imagine. He, he just, the, the sight that met his eyes that day was so overwhelming. He just fell down prostrate at the feet of Jesus as one that was dead. Anyone truly in touch with the Spirit of God instinctively bows in adoration to Jesus Christ. They don't rise up with a, a spirit of, uh, of pride and rebellion, but, again, uh, but instead they bow themselves before the Lord. You see, today this world has the cold grip of fear that grips its heart because of the chaos that tries to reign. But I have to remind you, that's not the case for the child of God. Look at what Christ responded to him. When he fell down there at his feet, what we see is Jesus reached out. He laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not. Amen. Isn't that incredible? He says, John, John, I love you. Don't be afraid. John, you're, you are special to me. Don't be fearful. Listen, I'm not here to make you afraid because God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And as Jesus laid his hand upon John, he was saying unto him, listen, don't be afraid, fear not. He was speaking to his old friend, John, the apostle, the, John, the pastor, John, uh, the one who propagated the gospel. And he's speaking to us today. And I just remind you, as we come before the Lord today, he reaches down and, and, and with his gentle hand of love and and he reminds us, fear not. Christian, if you're afraid today, let me remind you what he said in Matthew 28, 20. Lo, I am with you. How long, church? No, no, no. Until, until maybe tomorrow, Monday morning, he goes away, right? Till the end of the world. Amen. What a wonderful promise. And the greatest cure for man's fear is the personal presence of Jesus Christ. Notice a couple of things that Jesus points out here. And we'll do this by way of conclusion tonight. He said, first off, I am the first and the last. This speaks of Christ's eternality. He is before all things and after all things are through. He will still be God. Amen? 
He is, he is the Lord. He is, I'm the first and the last. And he goes on and says, I am he that liveth and was dead. He's, Christ was the sacrificial death that brought salvation and forgiveness of sins. Listen, we, we serve a risen and living Savior tonight. He's not in a grave somewhere. We can't go dig up his bones. We can't open a stone and say, well, look, there's his bones right there. Why? Because they're not there. The Bible says he still lives. He's alive and alive forevermore. As he goes on and says, I am alive forevermore. What a wonderful pro proclamation here because the scripture tells us that Christ, who died once for sin, once, church, not over and over and over again, he will not die again. He will not change his state. He will always be God. And oh, that men, oh, that we would recognize that the decision of accepting or rejecting Jesus Christ has an eternal impact. And let me just encourage you tonight, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, He is the living Savior. He's alive. He's on the right hand of the Father. And He says, I have the keys of death and hell. Man, what a glorious thing. He is the victor today. He is, he is the one who is victorious. And this is a detail maybe John didn't recognize in the description earlier, but what, it, what Jesus mentioned was maybe he jangled them in front of John and said, Remember, I am the victor here. I am not the one that, that succumbed to death. I'm not the one that stayed dead. I'm not the one that stayed in the grave. But instead, listen to those keys. He said, I'm the victor here today. And I, no longer do you have to be afraid. No longer do you have to be fearful because we serve and minister through a place of victory. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Amen. Woo. Man, that's exciting. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know what he said? He said, listen, he came to die to set you free. Glory. Hallelujah. Listen, I don't have a reason to fear tonight. I don't have to fear because Christ has the keys. Christ is the victor. And this is a symbol that, listen, I'm not bound any longer. Tonight, the big question is, do you know this one? Do you know the one that has the keys of death and hell? Is he your Savior? You see, though Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, he's not saved all people of the world because some have never accepted him. Matter of fact, He's given us this opportunity to, to choose. And He's given us this personal will. Will we accept or will we reject? You see, that's what God offers for us tonight. Will you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? When the Philippian jailer was confronted with this truth, he asked the Apostle Paul, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And he received this emphatic reply. Listen, all you got to do is believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Tonight, the same offer is made available to us. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, trust Him. Put your faith in Him. I urge you to commit your soul to Him by faith. I urge you today to repent of your sins. Come and uh, ask Him to come and dwell in your life and your heart and cleanse you from your sin and save you from your soul because I'm telling you folks, there's coming a day when God's wrath will be poured out and you don't want to wait that long. Amen. Would you bow your head with me? Tonight, maybe you're here with me and maybe you're going through a season of just discouragement and I just want to remind you, you serve a God who is still able. There's no reason for us to stay in the pew and stay defeated and, and stay knocked down. There are seasons, yes, but we shouldn't live there. There are seasons, yes, but we shouldn't remain there because we serve a God who is still able. And maybe you've forgotten that over time. And tonight I just want to invite you, come down to this old altar, find the strength that's there through Jesus Christ. Don't stay dead any longer.